Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. The uh, late John Stott once wrote, Romans 8.28 is surely one of the best known texts in the Bible. On it, believers of every age and place have stayed their minds and has been likened to a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. And I would absolutely agree with John Stott because this text has been for me in my life one that has given me great comfort on many occasions. It has been a verse that has strengthened me in many difficulties. It has been a passage that I have shared with people during many challenging and dark moments as a pastor. In fact, I uh, got a chance to visit with uh, the dear, our dear sister in the Lord, Brenda Norton, and this was the very verse that I used to comfort her when she had lost Jenny. These words have echoed in my mind and in my heart the truth that God is faithful and that He has the power and the will and the love to keep all of His promises. In fact, this verse means so much to me that anytime anybody's ever asked me to sign a copy of my book for them, I always write Romans 8.28 after my signature because it's been a defining verse for me in my life. The truth that God works all things out for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And that is a truth that ought to cause your heart to rejoice this morning. It is a truth that ought to draw you near to your Heavenly Father in sweet worship. Because this truth is rooted in God's overwhelming love for us, as Matt was talking about. It is a truth that is saturated with His grace and mercy for us. Brothers and sisters, hear me as we get started. This text is proof. It is proof that God loves you. Yes, you. And He loves you more than you can even possibly imagine today. I mean, listen to these words again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is an immutable truth that, ought to, that you ought to commit to memory today. I mean it, like, like this is a truth that you ought to write down, that you ought to like put it on your mirror so you see it the first thing in the morning. It is one that you ought to memorize because it's a reminder of what we really hope for. It is a reminder that even in the darkest of your worst days, even in the deepest valleys, even in the worst possible circumstances. God is still God, and He is completely in control. And because of that, your hope in Him is not in vain. That God is with you, that God is for you, and God works all things out for your ultimate good. And so right from the jump, you ought to immediately be moved in your heart to worship. And in light of that, it's appropriate that we find then a text like this in Romans 8. Because as we've been talking about, what is Romans 8? Romans 8 is the pinnacle of the gospel. As the preacher H.B. Charles had said, if the Bible was a gold ring, then Romans 8 is the centrally mounted diamond in that 
ring. Because Romans 8 brings us to the summit of our hope, the divine assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 begins with the promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and that it ends with the promise that there is no separation from God's love for those same people. And in between that is the truth that God gives us the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our salvation and that God adopts us into His family as children and makes us heirs along with Christ to the hope that is to come. And then God gives us the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness, including our ignorance. And then, as we will see today, God works then sovereignly all things out for our good to which then Paul will remind us that if God didn't spare His own Son, then how will He much more give us all that we need to endure to the end? <laughs> you see, the overarching point that Paul is making in Romans 8 is a glorious truth that those who put their faith in Christ are completely and totally safe in the hands of the living God. And because God Himself... He is the author and the sustainer and the, the, the perfecter and the finisher of your faith and your salvation. As Jesus said in his own words, Jesus, God in the flesh said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And if that wasn't emphatic enough, he said, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So if you are in Christ, you are safe in the hands of God, no matter what the circumstances, even in our suffering, which by the way, if you remember, that's the context of what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 8. In fact, turn with me to Romans 8, and let's back up to verse 16 so that we can just see how this develops. Paul writes, beginning in verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The point is that we will suffer in this world. It's just a given. It happens, right? Because we live in a fallen world filled full of fallen people. We're going to, there are going to be times when life is going to be hard for whatever reason. And in our suffering, we are not to lose hope, but rather we are to suffer with our eyes fixed on Christ, trusting in Him, holding on to Him by faith. And Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us, the promise of our final redemption when we will finally have perfect bodies and perfect minds in a perfect world, living in the presence of God Himself. All of that outweighs the difficulties of this life. This is the hope that we and even creation itself long for, Paul tells us. Even we groan for it in our suffering, and our hope of our redemption is what we patiently wait for. And then Paul tells us that when we struggle and suffer, that God, the Holy Spirit, is there and He Himself ensures that we endure in that hope. He helps us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
God in himself helps us to endure and persevere during our suffering, even when we're weak and ignorant, even when we don't know what to do, even when we don't know how to pray. God himself intercedes on our behalf, giving us all that we need to continue in our faith. And that is the context where we find ourselves today. The truth is, even in the darkest of times, our hope is not diminished because God helps us. And in light of that, Paul then writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Again, to which we respond with great joy. Praise the Lord, right? Because what a promise. What a promise. We know that God works all things out for those who love Him. If you understand that truth, praise the Lord. Because notice the word know. The word in Greek certainly means to know something, but it means to know something in an experiential way. You see, it's not like learning and knowing some abstract fact that exists out there somewhere. It's not like us learning and knowing that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. We know that, but it's not like we experienced that. No, what Paul is speaking of is knowing by experience. You see, the Greek word that Paul uses here is ido, which, which properly means to see with physical eyes. It's the idea of something uh, that you know something because you saw it or you experienced it. And metaphorically, it conveys the idea of perceiving, mentally seeing something. Now, what's the point? The point is, this kind of knowing is an intimate kind of knowing. A knowing that comes from experience. I know something because I've seen it. I know it because I've witnessed it. I know it because I've lived it. What Paul is saying is we know that God works all things for the good of those because, because we have seen it, we have experienced it, we have experienced the Spirit's transforming work in our lives. If you're a Christian, you know what I speak of. We've experienced God's goodness and grace. We have experienced and seen how God helps us in our weakness. We've experienced and we have seen how we've been set free from the, the, the penalty and then the power of sin. What Paul is saying is, is the truth of of God working all things out for our good is not some abstract fact that we just learn about, but it's something that's real and certain and something we can experience. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can testify to that. You can testify to how good God has been to you, even in the worst of circumstances, how God has worked those things out for your good. In 2008... My mom was diagnosed with a glioblastoma. That is one of the most aggressive forms of brain cancer. It's typically terminal. And I immediately began to pray for her, and I prayed every day that God would heal her. And understand, I have prayed for people many times in my Christian life, and I have prayed for them to be healed, and they were healed. And so I have been convinced from the very beginning of the, the power of prayer. That's why I pray so much. That's why we get together and pray. But I prayed for my mom many, many times for her to be healed, and God did not heal her. In fact, she continued to grow worse. 
She had the tumor removed and then she went through radiation and it made a difference in her life for a few weeks, but then she quickly began to grow worse again. In fact, six months, six months after her surgery, my dad called me and told me that my mom had a very short time to live. And so my wife and I went to the hospital where we were able to say our goodbyes and that very same day she was gone. And, and then we'd ask the question, then how did God work through my mom's cancer and death in a way that was good for, for those who loved him like me? I mean, this was a horrible thing that happened in my life. My mom was young. I mean, think about this. She was 54, right? She was 54. I am 51. She, she was one of the most important people in my life. She was the one who loved me even when she didn't have to because she, she adopted me. So how could this suffering be good, right? Well, when Kim and I came to faith in Christ in 2004, we began to share our faith with everyone around us, including my parents. But my mom and dad did not want to hear it, right? They had grew up in church. They had had more than their share of negative experiences of, of church people and Christian people, and they just didn't care. They did not want to hear it from me. And so there actually became this tension between us for a little while, especially whenever we, we, we talk about faith. But when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, my parents' attitude began to change. And they became, became receptive to our prayers. They asked us for our prayers. And, and, and they became, became receptive to hearing the gospel again. And it was during that time that my mom was able to come to real faith in Christ. In fact, hours before she died, she asked me to pray for her one last time. And I did, and she confirmed for me in that moment that she was trusting in Christ and Him alone. And Kim even asked her, was she afraid? Because she knew she was dying. And she said, no, she was not afraid because she had real hope, even though that her time was short. You see, God took the tragedy of her cancer and used it in a way that brought my mom to saving faith in Christ. He literally took something that was horrible and worked it out for her ultimate good. And he, he used this whole situation to give me real hope that my mom isn't gone. That she lives on right now with Christ. And being a child of God myself, I see that I will be with her again that God used my mom's suffering and my own suffering for my own good. Even my dad came to faith in that, and it was used for his good, and that we will then be reunited with her. And so I can testify to the fact that God, what, what Paul says here in this text, is true. And so can many of you. This is, my story is not unique. We all know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We know it, and we know it for a fact. But with that, there is still a whole lot in this text here, right? 
a lot that is easy for us to overlook and it's really important for us to grow in our hope and our understanding here. And so what I want to do this morning is just share with you from this text five truths that Paul identifies that, that, that we can know and ought to know about God and how He works for our good. Truths that, and, and convictions that I believe that are very helpful to us in our day and our walk with God through this life. And then after that, there are five things that Paul affirms about us and about our relationship with God that makes this problem immutable, that make, I mean, problem, this promise immutable. It makes this promise sure. Five things, it makes this promise something that is rock solid that you can build your life and your hope on. Now, I have to give credit where credit's due because um, I didn't come up with these five things on my own. Rather, I actually gleaned them from John Stott in his commentary on Romans. And uh, I share them with you now because I found them to be incredibly helpful and I think that they will be helpful to you as well. And so with that, Paul identifies five things that we know to be true from this text. And the first thing that we know is that God works. Now it says in this text that God that, that all things work together for good, but really the one who is working things out for our good is God himself, right? He is the one who, who works. In fact, the New American Standard Bible actually, I think, does a better job of translating this verse that makes God the focus of the working as it, as it renders the text this way. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. God is the one who sovereignly causes all things to work for our good. In fact, the New International Version, which, by the way, is not my favorite translation of the Bible by any stretch of the imagination, it actually is very helpful here um, in this particular instance because I think it's a, even a bit more clear as it translates this verse this way. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. I think that that's probably the best and clearest translation of that verse. And so it doesn't matter which translation you prefer, the issue is still the same. God ultimately is the one who works. We know God works works, even now. Now, this might seem really obvious to those of you who are Christians, but it is still the truth that we need to affirm because God, contrary to what a lot of people think in this world around us today, and even people who call themselves Christians, God is not some distant, disinterested deity sitting up in the clouds somewhere, just hanging around, apathetically watching us struggle and go through life. That is not who God is. God is, He didn't wind up the universe and then just simply let it go, right? And then let it play itself out. God is active. God is involved even today. You understand that, right? That God is active and involved even right now in this very moment. God is alive and active and involved in the world around us. God is at work in the lives of every person in the world simultaneously as He unfolds His divine plan and His will for humanity. And God is especially at work in the lives of His people. God is actively and intimately at work in your life, even when you can't see it. 
Not only did God actively intervene in human history through miracles and through his prophets that we find recorded in the Old Testament, but God himself intervened into human history through the life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a historical reality of God's work. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested to historical event in all of antiquity. It is historical proof that God is active in the world. And not only that, God is at work right now as the Holy Spirit actively works to convict people of sin. When you were convicted of sin, that is God that is working in your heart. I hear people all the time come to me and say, hey, that was exactly what I needed to hear today. I want you to know, like when I was researching this and, and actually putting this together, I'm doing this for me, right? I do this because I'm trying to understand the text myself and preach it to the best of my ability. I don't know who's going to be here on Sunday morning. So when the, when the Lord pierces your heart, that is him working. That is not me, right? That is proof that he's actively at work convicting you, right? God is actively at work regenerating hearts. God is actively at work sanctifying his people. The Holy Spirit actively works to illuminate our minds to the truth of the word of God. You understand things now better than you did before because God has opened your heart and mind to that. And, and God works to lead you to righteousness. He works to continue to reveal Christ to you. And as we said, He works to intercede for us praying on our behalf. When you come before the Lord and you don't know what to pray for as you ought, when you are so just lost for words, but you know that you need to be there, but you can't pray because you just can't. The Lord, the, the God Himself, the Holy Spirit is praying on your behalf. God actively works in the world around us and in us. And so never doubt it for a second. God is actively at work. And so, so we don't believe in and serve some distant sky daddy, as some people sarcastically say. By the way, I hate, of all the things that people can say, you know, you just believe in some sky daddy. It just, I'm like, you have no idea what I believe, right? You have not even the slightest idea of, of the reverence for, that, that I have for God, right? We believe in and we serve the living God who is everywhere present in creation, who is intimately aware of us in our circumstances and continually is active at work in all things. And God is at work and he is at work for the good of his people. John Stott wrote, being himself wholly good. His works are all expressions of his goodness and are calculated to advance his people's good. In other words, the work that God does in our in, it, that in other words, the, the work that God does for our good, the things that God does, he does all of it for our good. And the thing that we need to realize is God wants ultimately what's good for you. I think that's so easy to forget, right? We get caught up in just our day-to-day life and we think that sometimes God must hate us, right? right? But God wants what's good for us. Just like you, if you're a parent, you want what's good for your children. Right? You just instinctively want that. You want what's good for your grandkids. By the way, praise the Lord, my daughter's pregnant with her fourth so my fourth grandchild is on his way. Yeah, God is good, right? But the thing is, is I want good for my daughter. I want good for my grandchildren. And one day, hopefully, I live long enough to have great-grandchildren. Right? We as parents want good for our children 
God, your heavenly Father, wants good for you. Why? Because He loves you. That's the truth that we must keep in mind as we, as we suffer and struggle, even as we go through trials, even when we face circumstances that seem to be so overwhelming. God works and wants good for you because He loves you. I mean, that's, that's the basis of what we come to people when we tell them about Jesus. What do we say? For God, what? So loved the world that He gave His only Son. God loved you so much that He sent His Son into the world to do for you the things that you couldn't do for yourself. What did, what did Paul say just recently? He says, but God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners rebelling against God, that Christ, before we could do anything for Him, died for us. All right. What else did he say? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God loves us. God loves you if you're in Christ. I hope you understand that today. I hope you walk out of here today at least understanding that one truth, that God Yes, you, loves you. If you've put your faith in Christ, if you become one of his children, God loves you and wants what's good for you. And because of that love and that desire for your good, God then works actively for your good. Oh, gosh, just let that sink in. Because Christian, I know there are times that when things are hard, you think God must just be punishing me. Man, I must have done something really wrong because God must be just mad at me. God must hate me. God must be disgusted at me. God must have abandoned me. That's just simply not the truth. If you are in Christ, God loves you and actively works for you even when you can't see it. God works for your continual ultimate good and God works for your good in all things. This is really the part of the message I hope that you hold on to. I mean, if there's one thing you remember about this entire sermon, there's one thing that you carry with you out of here that, that carries you through for the next six months, let it be this one thing. The truth that God works for you and your good in all things. All things. All things. Please, I want you to understand that point. It is all things, not just some things, not just the good things, not just the happy things, not just the things that make you smile, not just the things that, that, that make your day really good, but in all things, everything, God works for your good. Even the very worst things, even the hardest of things, even the most painful of things, God in His love and His faithfulness and out of the desire for your good, He works all things out for your good and He works all things to bring good, even cancer even betrayal, even losing a job, 
even war. As we begin to hear the drumbeat of war again. Even COVID-19. Even the judgment that's coming upon our nation. Even if it's four more years of a candidate that you just can't stand. Even in face of your family members who reject you because your political ideology is different than yours. Even in persecution. And even in the death of those that you love. God can and does work all things out for His glory and for your good. And that is a promise that you can absolutely hold on to. That is a truth that you can cling to in the middle of the worst possible storm when all seems to be lost. The unshakable, immutable promise of God is that He is actively working in all things for the good of His children. But notice something really important here. Paul says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God works all things for those who love Him. And this is really an important distinction for us. This is is the gospel distinction for us. Because God is good all the time, right? And He is loving toward all of mankind in general. And God has given common grace for all people, as we have talked about multiple times. God has given all of mankind the gift of friendship. I have believers, I mean, unbelievers in my life who are friends of mine, and I see that they love people and they have great relationships. God has given them, by His grace, friendship. Right? You can see it. They, they, they enjoy the benefit of that friendship, even though that they don't believe in God. God has given them the gift of family and the warmth of sunlight, right? How many of you have had a chance that when these cold days the sun comes out and you stand there and just enjoy that warmth on your skin? God gave that to everybody, right? He gave that to to all people, right? How about the, the taste of food? Obviously, food's important to me. Ought to be to you too, right? But the taste of food is one of the most amazing things in the world, right? If you don't know that, then you just have never experienced Cajun food, all right? All right? But God has given all humanity the taste of food, and He's given mankind laughter and the feeling of happiness. Everybody you know, believer and unbeliever, at moments in their life are very happy, right? We all experience that. God is good to all people, and He has given them so many gracious gifts, even those who don't love God, even those who who spurn His grace. Remember, Jesus Himself said in Matthew 5, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the, the unjust. God's, God is gracious and good to all people, even His enemies, but He only works for the ultimate good of all things, right? For those who love Him. That's the gospel truth. Those who are His children, those who have accepted the gift of salvation through faith in Christ, only they can hold on to this promise. Why? Because if those who don't love God and those who rebel against Him and who refuse to come to Him through faith in Christ, even though they will enjoy God's common grace and even though they experience many of God's wonderful gifts 
in this life, one day we'll come face to face with the reality that none of that ultimately matters. Their joy in this life was pointless, meaningless. Their wonderful experiences were pointless, even worse. Their pain and suffering and their sacrifices were all in vain. What they strive for, what they work for, gone. Their struggle and striving and all their efforts were in the end pointless because they will stand before a holy, righteous, and just God who will judge them and give them exactly what they deserved and what they asked for in their rebellion. And all the good they will ever know will be past, long since gone. God is certainly good to all people, but God only works in the end all things out for the good of those who love Him. And then who are they that love Him? They're the ones who put their faith in Christ. They're the ones who repented and believed the gospel. They're the ones who trusted in Christ alone by faith. Those who hear the gospel and believe. Those who are united by by faith to Christ. But I want you to notice Paul also says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Those who love God are those who have been called according to His purpose. Those who love God, those who respond to God's invitation to salvation by faith in Christ are those who have been called according to His purpose. Now, this right here kind of requires us to slow down a bit and think through what Paul is getting at because there is a, there is a connection here in this text that we cannot ignore because we have to follow what Paul is saying here. In context, Paul has been talking about the assurance of our, our salvation, and he explains that the sufferings of this life are nothing compared to the hope that we have, the hope that we wait for, the hope that we are strengthened toward by the Holy Spirit. And in that context, Paul says, and we know for a fact that God works all things, including the worst things out, for the ultimate good of certain a certain group of people. And that group of people are identified by two specific criteria, those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. So who does God work all things out for the good for? Those who love God. And who are those who love God? Those who are called according to His purpose. Now, this is the part when we get into the text that some people's hearts begin to race a little bit and some people begin to breathe a little heavy and they begin to get worked up, especially given where Paul goes from here into chapter 9. There are those who struggle with the fact that, that God is completely sovereign in all things, including salvation itself. And there is a tendency to want to skip over parts of this or try to explain it away or try to jump to other Bible verses to try to explain what Paul's getting at here. And believe me, I understand that tendency. I, I once in my own life struggled with the, the sovereignty of God in salvation too, but I want you to hear me. The, the Word of God is God's own revelation of Himself to us, and it is always my aim to share with you what it is that God says. It is always my aim to unpack for you what the text actually is saying, right? Not what I want it to say, okay? Not what I think that you want to hear. My aim is never to give you my opinion. That's why we spend so much time actually in the text. Right? And my aim isn't to tickle your ears so that you'll like me. Right? You will either 
hear the word and appreciate it or you won't. My aim is always, to the best of my ability, to exposit and unpack the text for you, what it says and what it means. And, 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 and with that, I want you, you know, here and now, as we walk through these last couple of verses and as we walk then into Romans 9 a little bit later, there are some who have already in their minds made up and made a decision for whatever reason that God is sovereign in all things except for the area of salvation. There are some who struggle with the fact that the deciding factor of salvation is God's choosing us. And that choosing Him is actually the result of Him choosing us first. And, and, and He doesn't choose us because we would choose Him. He just chose us by His own sovereign grace. And there are people who struggle with that. And that's fine. I understand that. And that's okay. In fact, I want you to hear me. You do not have to agree 100% with everything I am saying or what I'm about to say. But what I do ask of you is as we as we go through this, that you start with this basic understanding that I love God supremely, I love all of you with all of my heart, and I love the Word of God. And because I love those three things so much, I will always, to the best of my ability, tell you the truth, even when maybe it's hard to hear. And starting there, then I would ask that you would listen to what I am firmly convinced that Paul is communicating here in this letter. And, and if at the end you were like, hey, you know what, that was good, but I don't agree with everything you said, that's cool, that's all right. Because guess what? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by perfect theology. And so with that then, those who, who are those who love God? They're the ones who are called according to His purpose. And I want you to notice a connection between those who God calls according to his purpose and those who love him. There is a connection we can't miss. First, we need to ask the question, what is the purpose that God is calling us to? Well, Paul answers the question, by the way, in the very next verse. He says, for, that word for means because, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn of many brothers. What's God's divine purpose? It is the redemption of His people. His people. That's His purpose. That is His purpose from the very beginning. That is the purpose that we then are called to if we're in faith in Christ. If we love Christ, that's the purpose that we were called to. Remember the covenant of redemption that we, we hold in such high esteem that God in eternity past, long before there was even a creation, ordained the redemption of His people, a people that He gives to Christ, and then Christ then agreed that He would come and that He would purchase that redemption through His life, death, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit then would come and He would then take that redemption and apply it to us by changing our hearts and living in us and shaping us and making us more like Christ. That's God's purpose. It's the redemption of His people, His family, His children. In fact, notice how He says this, that Christ is the firstborn of many brothers. There's that family language again that we've been hearing so much about in Romans chapter 8. In fact, Paul said earlier in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of of adoption as sons. 
by whom we cry what? Abba, Father, right? There's that family relationship. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God with Christ, fellow heirs with Jesus. We are His brothers, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. That's the purpose that God has for those who love Him, that they would that would be many, one of many brothers in an heir to the kingdom. That's who we are, right? We are the family of God, heir to the kingdom. But how then do we become children of God? How is it that sinners can be reconciled into God's family? Remember, God is just. He will not abide sinners. How can we then be made right with God? How can we be reconciled into His family? Right. Well, it's God's purpose for those who love Him to be conformed into the image of Christ. In other words, we're to be made like Jesus. That's the purpose. We are to become like Christ. What does that mean? Well, this is where people get really weird, by the way. Okay? It's because they begin to think in terms of, okay, we need to ask the question, what would Jesus do? You remember that movement, right? Like everybody and their brother had a little sticker or a little bracelet or something. WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? And the idea that you're looking at every situation, you know, of, of, of what you're supposed to do in your life. You know, we're at Taco Bell, I'm supposed to order. What would Jesus do, right? You know, I'm supposed to put tires on my car. Should I get, you know, the, the really nice ones or should I save a little money? What would Jesus, you know? That's kind of the, the question that was asked, and even more than that, there, th- th- this was the cause of people creating a bunch of rules for what Jesus would do. We hear it all the time in legalistic circles, both on the right and the left, right? What would Jesus do? And so people would say things, well, well, Jesus would do this. And well, if Jesus was here, he'd be a Republican. Well, Jesus was here, he'd be a Democrat. If Jesus was here, he'd be a socialist. So you ought to be a socialist because Jesus would have been a socialist, Right? Man, you're not a Christian because you don't, even, you don't even love poor people like Jesus did, right? You can't be a Christian because you, you, you think illegal aliens are illegal and people, nobody's illegal, right? And, and, and you, you're not like Jesus because you're not really nice. And Jesus was nice to everyone. And the list goes on and on and on. We can make all kinds of rules of what people think that Jesus would have done or how he would have been like. But that's not even what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that we need to sit around thinking about what would... Jesus do. What Paul is talking about was what God himself has done in you. You see, it's God's purpose for you to be conformed or made in the image of Christ. Or in other words, you're to be made righteous like Christ. You see, you don't do the conforming because you can't make yourself righteous. Right? I mean, think about this. Why did Jesus come into the world in the first place? to do all the things that you couldn't do for yourselves, to live the perfect life you couldn't live. Why? To earn for you a righteousness you couldn't earn. Why? Because that's what God requires for us to have fellowship with Him. He requires perfect righteousness, perfect obedience to God's law. And guess what? We all failed. We can't do it. Even now, we can't do it. We sinned and fell short of that righteousness and left to our own. We are helpless and hopeless to fix it because we will never be righteous by our own efforts. That's, the, that's what legalism is, by the way. That's what, that's what self-righteousness is. We'll never be that. We can't do it. 
But Christ came into the world and he kept the covenant of works that Adam failed to keep and obeyed the law that we all fall short of to earn for us a righteousness that we would never be able to earn so that we then can put our faith in him and that righteous standing that he then earned, he gives to us, he grants to us, he credits to us as if we then accomplish that. That's what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And even more than that, our sins were washed away because Jesus not only lived for our righteousness, but he died to make atonement for our sins. It is God who is the one who conforms us. It is the one, it, he is the one who does it all. Remember, Paul said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is an exchange that happens that our sin is given to Christ and His righteousness is given to us. And guess what? We didn't do any of it. Having our sins washed away and being declared righteous and is to be conformed in the image of Christ by God Himself. When you come to faith in Christ and become unified to Christ, you automatically become like Him. In fact, that's what the word Christian means. It means Christ-like. But not only where we declared righteous, right now you're actively being made righteous. You are being conformed right now into the righteous character of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit because we, we know, right, in this life, we still battle remaining sin. But as we have been talking about, God gave us the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us, leading us, guiding us, convicting us, and progressively sanctifying us of the remaining sin in our lives. The Holy Spirit is actively right now conforming you into the image of Christ by the power of the Spirit and by the power of the Word. That's why we said earlier, that's how we put to death the deeds of the flesh. And one day that work will be finished and we will be glorified. We will be fully conformed into the image of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to look just like Jesus, the 30-year-old Jew, right? What it means is we're going to be completely and totally righteous and holy because the sin that once plagued us will be past, right? We will be saved permanently from the presence and the effects of sin. That's what we, what we hope for, right? That's the hope that we long for, that, that we will never have heartache again, that we will not experience pain in our bodies, that there won't be temptation to do stupid things, that's God's divine purpose. That's the purpose that we're all called to. We are called to faith so that we can be saved from the penalty of sin and declared righteous and then progressively being saved from the power of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit actively making us practically righteous. And then one day we will be saved from the presence of sin where we'll be completely righteous. That's how we're conformed to the image of Christ and made one of many brothers. And Paul says those who love God are called to that purpose. Now, some will say, well, Paul is just talking about the general call of the gospel, that God calls all people to believe the gospel. And it is true. God calls all people to believe. He does. But that's not what Paul's referring to here, because what do we know about people? People just won't come to God on their own. It's just not who they are. It's not what they want. It's not in their nature. They might hear the gospel call, but they didn't come on their own. 
I heard the gospel probably a thousand times in my life, but it was not until God changed my heart supernaturally when I was about to make the worst mistake and destroy my own child. It wasn't until God used my sin to pierce my heart to make me aware that I needed Him. People will not come on their own. Because what, what does Jesus Himself say in John chapter 6, verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws, or literally drags is what the word means, drags him. Paul is not talking about the general calling. He's calling about, he's talking about the effectual calling, the calling that actually brings people to faith, the work that only God himself can do. Because notice what he says next. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn of many, many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are some inescapable terms here that we just can't get away from. For new and predestined. <laughs> I don't care how many hoops you jump through and how you try to explain it. Those words mean what they mean. Right? The terms, we can't get away from them. And here's the thing, the word foreknew doesn't simply mean that God knew some facts beforehand. He didn't know some things beforehand. What it actually means is He knew it because He ordained it. In fact, the word foreknew here carries with it a sense of intimacy and love. I don't know if you realize that. The word foreknew here, this Greek word, actually has with it this idea of love. You see, God didn't simply know about you ahead of time. God knew you because he ordained you and created you and imagined you and loved you long before even the world itself existed. God knew you because he conceived you in his thoughts and he loved you even before the world began. And I know that's a thought that can't fit in your head, but I'm going to tell you, if you ever doubt God's love for you, his love is beyond your even imagination. His love began long before you even were here. God loved you even before your parents even knew that you were a thing. And in that love, God predestined you to be conformed in the image of Christ. He predestined literally means to set boundaries or limits beforehand. It means to predetermine. It's a foregone conclusion. So what Paul is saying is that all things work together for those who love God who were called according to his purpose because those whom he lovingly foreknew because he created them, he also predestined or predetermined that they would then be fully conformed in the image of the Son so that they might become righteous like Jesus in order that Jesus might be the first of many brothers to come. And then... Paul says in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he predetermined, he also called by his effectual calling. And those whom he called, he also justified by faith in Christ. And those whom he justified, he also then glorified. And you'll say, well, wait a minute, pastor, that's past tense. And you're right, it is past tense. What's the point of Paul saying in past tense? What, it, what, it, what he's saying is that, that the glorification that we look forward to is already a settled reality. It's already settled. 
Do you understand that? This is why we tell you that if you're in Christ, you can't lose your salvation. It's a settled reality. It's done. When Jesus said it's finished, he meant it's finished. It's not being finished. It's done. Now, again, this reality may be future to us, but it's already done. It's predetermined. He predestined us for this. It is unchangeable. Praise the Lord. As uh, Vody Bauckham often says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If it's up to me, I'm in trouble. That's why we can be certain of our hope. That's why we can hold on to this hope because salvation is 100% the work of God Himself. God is the one who lovingly knew us beforehand because He's the one who imagined us into existence in the first place. And God is the one who is in that love, chose us and predestined to save us. And He is the one who justified us by His grace through faith in Christ. And yes, right? We had to exercise faith. We have to believe, yes, you have to do that. That is your responsibility. You must do that. You have the choice to do that. You must exercise faith in Christ. But even that, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, you find out that's still a gift of God. That you have faith because God has given you the ability to have that faith. And so God is the one who changes hearts and makes us alive in Christ. It is God who regenerates us and makes us born again. It is God who justifies us by grace through faith in Christ. And it is God who dwells in us, sanctifying us, setting us apart from the world, freeing us from the power of sin. And it's God who finishes that work of glory, work to glorify us and finally and fully redeem our bodies and minds and character where we're permanently protected and set free from sin. It is all God all the time. And notice how Paul writes this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he, he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what's been called throughout history, the golden chain of redemption. And all the, the links in the chain are unbreakable because it is, it is God who is the one who foreknows us. It is the one, he is the one who, who predestines us. He is the one who calls us. He is the one who justifies us. And he is the one who will ultimately glorify us. It is all God all the time. And that is why you and I can have full assurance of our salvation. And that's why the promise of Romans 8, 28 is completely rock solid. We know, we know for a fact that God works all things, including the worst of things, out for the good of those who love Him because He is completely and totally in control of everything. There is not one maverick molecule in the entire universe. There is nothing outside of His control and there's nothing that happens to you or happens in your life that surprises God. By the way, when you do stupid things and fall face down in your sin, He's not surprised by that either. Kind of knew it's going to happen. There is nothing that, that He isn't using in your life that He won't use for your ultimate good. God is using everything in your life to work in you, to shape you more and more into the image of Christ. God is perfecting you, even in your difficulties. Even as you struggle, God is working behind the scenes. Even when you can't feel it, He is loving you, He is caring for you, and He is sovereignly bringing to pass His glorious purpose for you, and you can trust 
in that because he is completely in control. As we hear the Paul say, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. So then what do we do again in light of this? What a glorious truth. Well, again, always repent and believe the gospel. If you were not in Christ, that is the cry of my heart to everybody I talk to. Repent and believe the gospel. I've been going back and forth with someone, you know, on uh, online, and he's like, you Christians, you just want to control people. Like, I have no interest in controlling your life, right? What you do is your business. All I'm telling you is, is that you can live your life the way you want to live your life, but there's going to come a point where you will face God, and he's going to judge you, and the, and the conclusion is going to be inescapable. What I have for you is hope. Repent and believe the gospel, and then let God change your heart about those other things, right? I'm, I don't care right? As far as you live your life how you want to, it is no skin off my nose. What I care about is your salvation, right? And that's the call continually. Repent and believe the gospel. If you're not in Christ, today is the day of salvation. You can be saved and you can have assurance of your faith if you'll just turn to Jesus and believe, right? Now, the rest of us, this is where I come back to you know, I hear, I've heard so many sermons about, okay, now you need to go out and do this and you need to go, no, you need to rest in this truth, right? You need to rest in Christ. I have other people who are like, every time I make a post, by the way, about the Lord's Day, I get somebody saying, what about the Sabbath? You know, the Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. I'm like, man, you missed the whole part where Jesus said that the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus had come to me and rest, right? We rest in Christ. Well, we also rest in the truth that all things work together for your good. That means that when you are going through life and you're overwhelmed and it seems like nothing's ever going to get better, you don't just try to run around trying to fix it all on your own. You go, Lord, I'm trusting you in this. Like, I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't even know how it could be worked out for my good, but I trust in you that you're going to work it out for my good and I'm going to then rest in you. I'm going to do the things that I can do and I can control, but I realize you control all things, so I'm going to rest and trust in you. And I'm not going to be overwhelmed. And this is not going to steal my joy in Christ. Rest in the truth. And then finally, rescue the lost. This is the calling that we're called to. We're not called to then suddenly become people who obey a bunch of rules and are really good at like looking you know, perfect on Sunday mornings. We're called to go out and share this hope. We are blind people who found bread, who were showing other blind people how to get bread. That's who we are. We're going out and sharing the love of God that He's given to us. And as we say before, like salvation's on our work. We do our part, which is what? Sow the seed, love the people, pray for God to change our hearts, and then never give up. That's what we do. And that's how we apply this. Trusting in the fact that the things that you do to share the hope of Christ will bear its fruit, that God will work those things, even those things, out for your good and those whom you come in contact with. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. 